Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Here at the NBN, we know that the world is facing a tremendous challenge and that many of you are dealing to the best of your abilities uh, with the consequences of this pandemic. We hope that in the midst of all, these interviews can help you face the dread and isolation, or at the very least, that they can distract you and help you think in something else. This is why today I will be talking to Luz Maria Hernandez Sáenz about her wonderful book, Carbina Niche, The Medical Profession in Mexico, 1800-1870, published by McGill Queens University Press in 2018. Welcome, Luz Maria. Thank you for talking to me in this difficult moment. Hello, Lisette. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me and uh, also for the opportunity to talk about my book and my research. Yeah, wonderful. I'm so excited. So let's just start with a little bit of your personal background. So you are an emerita professor of history at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. So tell us about the path that led you here, how you came to study history, history of medicine, history of medical institutions in Mexico. Well, I'll just start by saying I just retired a couple of months ago, in December, um, I think to be a historian, to me there was no, basically no other option. I always loved history. I loved history since I was in primary school, and I was very happy to know that I could actually study that in university. So um, I was always a historian, I think, in a way. I did my undergraduate in Mexico City, and then uh, I got married, ended up in Canada, and continued doing my master's in Calgary, and then my PhD in Arizona. I got interested in medical history when I was doing my graduate studies in Arizona. Always the religious orders and the charitable institutions intrigued me. So trying to choose a topic, it was first hospitals. But then after doing some research and so on, I opted for, well, the medical profession. And let's call, let's say, profession in a very loose way. So I was trained as a colonial historian. So my research was in the 18th century medical profession in Mexico. That was my dissertation and my first book. Yeah, so so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how how things have changed um, since you published your first book, which is titled "Learning to Heal: The Medical Profession in Colonial Mexico, 1767 to 1831," and you published this, I believe, in 1997. Um, so tell us, I'm so I'm so intrigued by how you think. I mean, you have 
had all of this experience. Uh, congratulations on your retirement. So how do you see all of this, how the field has changed? I mean, from I, I, I'm a historian of Colombia and I think Mexico, Mexico historiography is so rich. Um, there's so much things published uh, and you've been part of that. So I wonder how you assess the field, how you think things have changed since you started studying this and then publishing your first book. And how you your own position has changed in all of these years? Well, the the field has changed in the last years. We have many more studies, and studies that do not follow the traditional history that we had in the 70s and 80s, that was basically guided by political events. Um, Lately, we have much more social history. That is what I really love. And there's been a, a number of publications in Spanish and English on different topics, epidemics, um, how the different branches, if you want to call it like that, of medicine have developed and, uh, and so on. Now, my first book was basically on the colonial part. But as I started researching for my second project, that was not what I ended up writing. Actually, my second project was to analyze the influence of, of France on Mexican medicine. But as I did my research, I realized that the first part of the 19th century in Mexico still needs to be analyzed. There's not much on it, and what we have are mainly political and military studies. Um, there was nothing comprehensive about um, the medical profession. The last book, and the only one written on them and medicine, was published in 1870s. So it was time for a, for a new study. So that's how I, I came to that. Um, I hope that by publishing these two books, I contributed to the field, and I certainly hope that it opens a debate on the different issues that I talk about. Yes, wonderful. No, I think it's a great contribution. And I also think, I mean, I believe that what you're saying for Mexico is true for Colombia. Maybe it's the fact that it's the independence years that, you know, draws the attention to many of these political events. And this side of medical history has been like uh, neglected. But with what's going on, we have seen the importance of epidemics, uh, medicine as a profession. So Maybe now we should move um, to the book. So you start the introduction telling your readers that 1813 was an ominous year for licensed physicians. Uh, this was the period of independence in Mexico and in many, many other regions in Latin America. And it was a convoluted moment where refugees that were fleeing combat crowded the capital city and they contributed to water pollution and the spread of disease. So a deadly epidemic was the logical consequence of this exodus of people. 
and one that you say made evident the clash between old values and new ideologies. Uh, so on the one hand, there was the Proto-Medicato, a Spanish institution with a long history in Spanish America and in the peninsula too, one that for centuries provided privilege and social status to its member. And on the other hand, there was a vision of a more democratic society based on merit, um, the idea that the government was meant to oversaw public health. So in this year, and only provisionally, Spain ended medical practitioners' monopoly and uh, long-held professional rights uh, by abolishing um, the Protomedicato, this ancient guild. Um, so tell us a little bit about the context of the late colonial period in Mexico and how this clash between old and new came about. Where, was this, where does this new vision of public health come from? And why was this moment important? important for medical practitioners in order to realize that to defend their elite position, reform was imperative? Okay, there are actually very complicated questions because we do not have two sides. We do not, we do not have the old and the new and so on. It's more complicated than that because we have issues of nationality, race, and interests, professional interests and personal interests. Um, in the 18th century, there are a number of reforms, as you surely know. The Bourbon dynasty came to the Spanish throne, and by the middle of the century, they embark in this series of reforms to basically update all the administration, to be able to improve the economy of Spain and its colonies. So we're going to have also we're going to have administrative reforms, we're going to have economic reforms, we're going to have also military reforms. At that time, of course, there's more competition for empire between Spain, Britain, and France. So all these things are going to bring a series of changes in the colonies. Now, in the case of Mexico, the army reforms are going to be very, very important because they are going to bring, I'm talking about medicine, they are going to bring a number of uh, Spanish surgeons with the armies that are going to be posted in, in Mexico and they are going to become competitors of the local practitioners. So here is not only the old and the new, but it's also a matter of regionalism or nationalism, if you want to call it that way. So the Protomedicato, yes, the, it represented the old values, but it also represented, at least in Mexico, the interests of the locals. And that's why it's going to be so opposed to the innovations that the peninsulares, that are the, Span the Spanish surgeons, are going to bring. It's also a time in which there's going to be more immigration from Spain. There's going to be more preference for Spaniards, for government posts, military posts, and, and so on. And all this is going to cause a great deal of resentment among the locals. Now, the catalyst for change 
because there were a number of factors there that gradually contributed to change. But the catalyst is going to be the, the Napoleonic invasion of Spain, because the colonies are going to be left, basically. They are going to be just told that now they have a French king, not a Spanish king. And trying to deal with the situation is going to bring up also a number of interests. The Spanish officials, the Viceroy, for example, they were opposed to the changes taking place in Spain, but they had to enforce the new regulations. So this is going to cause a number of confrontations. And, and I talk, in this chapter, I talk about that. I concentrate in Mexico City, but the whole idea of having municipal, giving more power to the municipal governments that are now going to be in charge of the Juntas de Sanidad, as opposed to the power that the Protomedicato had. So here's where the uh, Juntas de Sanidad come into play. Now, having said that, Mexico City was the seat of the Viceroyalty. So we're going to have a very interesting situation in which we have many of the residents of Mexico City against the Spanish officials, some Spanish officials, because others favor their reforms. When we go to other places, such as Puebla, in Puebla, the Juntas de Sanidad and the power of the municipal governments is going to be very welcome because that gives them more independence from the center. So the whole idea of the old and the new is quite complicated given the different interests and the different factors. Now you asked me another question um, about public health. Well, the idea of public health is something that goes back to the 18th century, really, when um, the epidemics and the illnesses are going to start being studied or considered by a society that is becoming more secular. So we're not just going to assume that God sent them. We're going to have people who start getting interested in understanding why this happens. And of course, they have different theories. They still don't really understand how disease works. But one of the very popular theories is a miasmatic theory. Basically, the environment is what makes you sick. So this is where the idea of public health is going to not start, because ideas don't just start, but it's, it's going to become more important. So by, by the 19th century, this uh, public health is something that is going to be quite important in places such as France, England, and it's also going to be promoted, the whole idea of public health, with the cholera epidemic of the 1830s when people really realize that it is 
the environment, in this case, water, that is going to cause these epidemics. So I think that was the question you asked me about public health, right? Yes, and that was perfect. I think it's a perfect introduction to situate the book. Um, maybe now, and I know that France is very important in your story, but before we get to France and the international context more broadly, I want to ask you about liberalism. So your your book follows the trajectory of medical practitioners and the efforts to earn professional scientific recognition monopolize medical knowledge and establish uh, the basis of a modern profession. So you explore the changes that occurred in this transition from a colonial corporate society to a liberal independent republic. So I, wa I would like to ask you about liberalism, because this is one of the main, I think, main points of your book. So how did liberalism impact um, these changes? And here maybe you can also... Um, for our listeners, define what you understand as professionalization. Like, what is a modern profession? You you said at the beginning that you were using like a loose definition of modern profession, and you kind of give us some standards to think about what a modern profession is. So, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about this, about liberalism, and and how this moment push uh, surgeons and doctors to collaborate and uh, pursue reforms. Okay, I'll start by the what is a modern profession. I mean, there are a number of studies about it by sociologists and so on. Basically, what the conclu conclusions I drew is that to be a modern profession, you have to have specific skills that are going to be based on theoretical knowledge. You have to be able to offer specialized services you have to have the monopoly of practice and ideally a professional association that is going to promote research and solidarity and is going to defend the interests of its members. So in the case of the 19th century professions, they are certainly not, let's say, completely formed yet. Um, The case of Mexico and Latin America is quite interesting because some of these, they have some of these characteristics basically by legislation. The whole idea that they have a monopoly and so on, this is legislated. It's not real because the, the physicians and they still cannot offer a unique service and they cannot offer it for different reasons. The results are not superior to the results of, let's say, the healer next door. We're talking about 18th century, beginning of the 19th century. They still cannot prove that they can offer a superior service. The other thing is they don't have the monopoly of practice because they are the minority. And this is linked, of course, to the fact that they cannot offer a superior service. Um, they still are trying to prove they have the theoretical knowledge. And the other thing they don't have is the means. There's no pharmaceutical industry yet. So anybody can go to the mountain and gather some herbs 
and give them to the patient. So they don't have monopoly. They don't have control over medicines. So all this is going to develop in the 19th century, and it's going to take a while up to the late 19th century is when we really start seeing a modern profession. I did use the term medical profession because I couldn't find a better one. It was really very hard to find another term that described what I wanted to say. So, I mean, taking that into account, you are asking me about liberalism. Well, liberalism contributed to the development of the, of the profession in the case of Mexico, when we have the, the fall, if you want to say, put it that way, of the proto-medicato, the new organizations are going to be more democratic. And this is something that comes from liberal ideas. The Facultad Medica is supposed to be a more democratic organization. Of course, 19th century democracy is not our democracy. Uh, not everybody is included in that democracy. The democracy is only for the top layer of the profession, physicians, surgeons, and pharmacists. Also, there's going to be a great emphasis on knowledge, and this is also part of the liberal ideas. Great importance of education that uh, the practitioners fought for, the ability to improve the medical curriculum, and the ability to control knowledge. And there, this is going to be very clear when we get uh, to talk about midwives and surgeons, for example, physician surgeons. The two of them are going to be trained. They are going to go to school to learn about what was called the midwifery, obstetrics and, and so on. But of course, the midwives are given a very simple guidelines, and the surgeons are the ones that really get to know as much as they could at the time the area. Why? Because in that way, you ensure that the most... Uh, expensive services, the most complicated childbirths are managed by the surgeons or physician surgeons, not by the midwives. So the emphasis on knowledge is also something important uh, that comes from uh, liberalism. The other thing that we see is the with all the reforms and all the changes that the uh, wars of independence and the fall of the Spanish Empire brought, one is the fragmentation of political power. So decentralization of power is going to prevent a national organization of medical education, professional organizations, and so on and so forth. That each different area is going to be, to a degree, disconnected. Mexico City, Facultad de Medicina, Consejo de Salubridad, um, physicians like to think they were in control, but they were not. In fact, they were as weak 
as the central government was at the time. So these are some ways in which liberalism is going to shape the, the profession. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's a huge part of your book and one that is uh, central, I believe, to your argument. And the other part, I think, as well, is the international context and the particular influence of France, uh, French doctors. And it's interesting that you tell us that this is how you initially imagined this project as a way of thinking French influence in Mexico. So I wonder if you can speak a little bit about Why was France so important? I, I believe this happened in Colombia as well. Why, uh, why France and not other countries? In, you mentioned, like for comparative purposes, you mentioned the case of the U.S., you mentioned other Latin American countries, but you say that uh, without a doubt, the most important reference there is France. So can you tell us a little bit about this, about this comparative framework that you lay out in the book? Sure. Um, yes, I, I was intrigued by French influence because even nowadays there's the French influence in Mexico. I mean, you cannot deny it, deny it. And Mexico had a French empire. We were invaded by the French armies. And even so, Mexicans were ready to forgive and forget this in just a few years, while Mexicans have never forgiven the United States. So this intrigued me. Why Why so different? Why is such a different attitude? And in my area, that is medicine, I assumed that I was going to find that the French empire was the key to understand the French influence on Mexican medicine. But as I started reading, I realized it went back and back and back. And I ended up in the colonial period. So in summary, I think the French influence comes with the Bourbons. Of course, the Bourbons were a French dynasty when with the first uh, Bourbon king, Philip V. The French, his French court um, ideology and so on is going to be brought to Spain. Now, In, um, there's, there was also something that was called the Family Pact. And this was kind of an agreement between the Spanish crown and the French crown to cooperate when it came to the military, when it came to different issues. So this is why we, we find so many surgeons, French surgeons, since the 18th century in the colonies. In Mexico, many of the viceroys, well, not many, all of the viceroys would arrive with their court, their physician, their, and usually they were French. So all this contributes to the French influence and um, not only on medicine, but in many, many other areas. When we have the French Revolution, there's a considerable migration of certain groups, French groups, to Spain and the colonies. Physicians were seen as part of the elite. So some of them decide to leave France and move. I have a, a number of cases of French physicians that, that go to the Americas, to different places in the, in the Americas. 
And then in the 19th century, early 19th century, due to the changes in French medicine, in the medical education and so on, there was the feeling, and I just certainly cannot say it was right or wrong, but there's certainly the feeling that there are too many physicians and too many practitioners in France. So many of them decide to emigrate and look for other places. Now, the Latin America in general was a very good area because they, they usually lacked medical practitioners. Uh, so there was demand for their work. So we're going to have a number of French physicians arriving to Mexico, and I'm sure they arrived also to other places in Latin America. Now, the French medical system was also similar to the Spanish one. There was fairly centralized. The role of a state was um, very important when it came to the reorganization of medical education. Legislation was also very important in, in France. During the French Revolution, Napoleonic Wars, and there's also, of course, cultural similarities. The other thing that I found is that after independence, Mexico becomes very Hispanophobic. So it's kind of looking for a role model, and this is going to be France. Mexico becomes a great consumer of French imports, has many, has a large group of French uh, immigrants. Most of them are merchants, but of course, that is going to result in attracting also French physicians that know they are going to have work there. They are going to be with their own. So when, when Mexico developed the curriculum for medical education and so on, it was France. The model to follow was France. Why not... Um, the United States, for example. Well, the United States had a very different system. First of all, it was not unified. Each state seemed to have a lot of power, control over its own territory. There was not a one medical uh, education system. There were many. So this, this was very different from what Mexicans were used to. The other thing is that the culture was very different. And of course, after 1840s, the Mexicans didn't really want to copy the United States. So, so that's, that's what I see as the main reasons to, uh, for French influence in Mexico. Wonderful. And I think we'll get to see this in specific instances when we come to discuss some of the chapters. So we're going to move now to the chapters. I'm going to, they are divided, by the way, thematically, so our listeners know. Uh, chapter one is titled The Juntas de Sanidad and the Protomedicato. But since you've kind of talked about this a little bit, uh, we'll skip that chapter. So if listeners are interested in the history of the Juntas de Sanidad and the Protomedicato, their tensions, rivalry, they can go to that chapter. Um, let's move to chapter two then which is titled Union and Control, Professional Reorganization and the New Nation. 
So here you focus on your realignment of different medical fields. And you devote three sections to the impact of reform on phlebotomists, dentists, and midwives. And so you're very transparent about the fact that your book uh, concentrates on licensed medical practitioners. And you already mentioned that they were the minority, right? And you don't delve into an in-depth analysis of illegal medical practices. However, Doctors and Surgeons Union, uh, their alliance was prompted by their desire to maintain their privileged status in relationship to the more numerous illegal practitioners, right? Um, so can you tell me a little bit about the relationship between um, licensed and unlicensed practitioners, how that rivalry shaped and impacted reforms, and the consequences of the reforms in the practice of unlicensed medical practitioners? Um, yeah, uh, we had basically licensed and unlicensed, or they call them illegals, they call them curanderos, that were the great majority. I concentrated on the development of the medical profession as a profession, so that's why I concentrated on the licensed practitioners. I recognize that the majority were not licensed, but by illegals or curanderos, we have people that were formally trained, but they never got their license for whatever reason. One of them, it was quite expensive. Um, some others were half trained. Maybe they went to university or they went to surgical college, um, the Escuela de Medicina, and they didn't finish. Others learn as apprentices. We also have the healers. We have the, the healers that practice a mixture of um, indigenous, African, and European beliefs and practices. And so they are a very heterogeneous group. And the type of research you need to include them is kind of a different research that is more, especially in the case of healers, more of an anthropological research. The other thing is that I feel that they deserve a book to themselves. So, so that's why they were not included. Now, the, the illegals were a problem since colonial times. We have them since the very beginning for many different reasons. One of them, of course, is that the Spaniards bring Western medicine, or what they saw as Western medicine in the 16th century. That was actually probably worse than what the locals had. Um, the indigenous peoples were not just to adopt this, uh, this medicine, so they are going to keep their traditions. So it's going to be very difficult to try to enforce a monopoly. There's also the legal part, the equivalent of the police or the was not allowed to go into the indigenous towns. So basically the protomedicato could not enforce regulations in the indigenous towns. So they maintain their customs, they maintain their uh, practices, and this is going to contribute to have a mixture that we still have, and I'm sure you have also 
in, um, in Colombia and in other parts of Latin America of local beliefs, old Spanish beliefs, and also African beliefs. Should I ask a new question or do you want to talk more about that? Well, I just mentioned briefly that up to the 19th century, the formal physicians, the licensed physician, had a lot of trouble trying to prove that they were better than the unlicensed physicians. And they were usually more expensive. So, of course, it's going to be very hard to try to enforce a monopoly and to control this. Uh, there's also the fact that there were never enough practitioners. There's constant complaining about these areas where there's nobody except for a barber or a healer. The, the problem between legals or licensed physicians and the illegals are in the places where there's competition. And of course, where the patients can pay for the, for the services. There's usually no conflict between the licensed physicians and the unlicensed ones if we are referring to an isolated place that is very poor because there's no competition. The licensed physicians are never going to want to go. And I think this is something that we still have that problem in Mexico and in many other countries. That That is so interesting. Um, so for uh, listeners who are interested in that relationship between uh, illegal and legal practitioners, check out chapter two. So let's move on to chapter three and four. In chapter three, uh, you examine the role of played by the Protomedicatus successors, the Facultad Medica, the Consejo Superior de Salubridad, and the Consejo Central. Uh, these were professional bodies and health boards. And in Chapter 4, you examine medical education. So training future de generation is uh, the title of that, of that chapter. Here you focus on the struggle of the medical elite to reform and control medical education. So... I, I think it, it would be interesting for you to talk about these two chapters because we see some of these changes that are leading towards professionalization. Um, in, the, in the case of medical education, the French influence is super important, as you already said. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about these changes that are happening that are very important for this process that you are, you are telling us in, this, in the book. Okay, I'll very briefly summarize. In the, in the third chapter, that is basically about public health and the public health boards. Here we have also the influence, uh, the French influence. But as I believe that despite the fact that in Mexico they are trying to copy the French model again and again, they still cannot get rid of the Hispanic past. And this is something that is going to be very obvious when it comes to public health. After the uh, Protomedicato was abolished, because of course the Protomedicato was a symbol of the colonial times, and by the 1830s had no prestige, and um, 
the same physicians realize that they have to modernize it in a way. So it's abolished and they come up with a facultad medica that is basically the protomedicato. Just it has another name and there's some changes. It's a little bit more democratic. Um, the protomedicato was always certain university professor and the viceroy appointed somebody else. In the Facultad Medica, they are going to elect the representatives and, and so on. So it's also going to be a provisional board, a provisional organization that is going to last only 10 years, but it's going to be very important because they are the ones that drew up the medical curriculum the, uh, for the School of Medicine and the basic guide for the health board. Of course, they also had to take care of other things because there was nobody else to do it. So they, they also have, they are also responsible for licensing the physicians, surgeons, and, and all other healthcare workers. And they are basically a bridge between the colonial past and what is supposed to be a more modern health board. The Consejo de Salubridad is inaugurated in 1843. Of course, by then the Facultad Medica is abolished, and they are going to be modeled after the Paris Health Board. But there are certain things that they won't let go from the colonial past, and that is that the board continues to be under the control of the physician, surgeons, and the pharmacists that have a minor role. They, um, they are also going to be in charge of professional issues at the beginning, and they do some, uh, they deal with public health. Gradually, public health is going to become more important as the medical school takes over some of their other responsibilities. They are going to continue functioning. This health board will continue functioning from 1843 to 1865. In 1865 is when we have Maximilian's empire. And Maximilian is going to try to redo the whole legislation, the whole organization of the empire. So we're going to have then a Consejo Central de Salubridad. And this is going to be from 1865 to 67, because of course the empire didn't last very long. But this is the first health board that is a national health board, at least in theory. It's supposed to uh, encompass the whole empire. And they are, work, they are going to work very hard during this brief time to put together a series of regulations, legislation, uh, policies, and um, so on. When the, liber the Republicans come back, of course, they get rid of this and they go back to the previous Consejo de Salubridad. However, if one compares uh, the Consejo Central that was uh, established during the Empire and the Consejo de Salubridad that we have later 
with Porfirio Diaz towards the end of the 19th century, regulations and are very, very close. So basically, it's going to be Maximilian's Consejo that is going to be, be the base for the Porfirian version of the public health code. Now, the, the next chapter is dedicated to education. And this is, I found this a very interesting chapter to research education because 19th century Mexico is, um, the history of Mexico is a series of myths and it's basically guided only by political events and by political history. And I found many things that I, I think are in a way revisionist history as to how medical ed education developed. The traditional history is that in 1833, suddenly they, um, we have this legislation and we have one or two of these politicians that are responsible for all these great changes. And of course, all previous curriculums were completely backward and so on and so forth. What I discover is that this, this is completely false. There's an evolution, there's a continuity since the late colonial period until the 1830s. And it's not one person, it's not two bodies, a number of physicians, uh, surgeons, politicians, educators that are going to collaborate to put together this education curriculum, general education, and also medical education, this is going to be mainly the physician surgeons. So the other thing I discovered, which is quite obvious, the, is the influence, uh, uh, the French influence. But it is not until one compares the programs offered in France and offered in Mexico that one can see really the similarities. Because everybody says it was based on, on the French program, but we have to really compare them to know what. What are the similarities and what are the differences? And the differences in Mexico is that Mexico didn't have the means and didn't have the infrastructure that France had. Therefore, they could not teach exactly the same courses, so they had to adapt. Uh, the French program was based on hospital work and dissections. In Mexico, that was very difficult to do. So Mexico is going to focus more on the theory than on the practice. The practice comes whenever they can and wherever they can. So this is going to be the main difference. In a way, is uh, basically adapting the, uh, the French program to the Mexican realities. Uh, perfect. And I think we're arriving to the end of your book, chapter five, which is titled In Search of Recognition, the Establishment of the Academy of Medicine, concentrate on the top medical practitioners' efforts to form an academy of, mes of medicine, uh, what was ultimately the crowning achievement of 
medical leadership. So here you trace uh, medical practitioners' pursuits from the first years of independence to the 1870s. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this process? Why was the Academy of Medicine so important for the professionalization of medicine? You kind of mentioned that a little bit before, but uh, maybe here you can really tell us why is this uh, so important and why was it essential then? Well, the the academy was very important for the medical profession in Mexico and in any other countries because it was a recognition, being a member was a recognition of one's knowledge and also the admission that into a select group. So for a member, this was very important. For the country, it was important to have this type of, of organization because of um, prestige, for example. Um, also, the academies were the, the only way in which the specialists in a field or, let's say, uh, practitioners in general, could get together, talk about their ideas, debate them, connect with others, that were interested in the same topics as they were. So they are a little bit like present-day conferences, in a way. At the time, of course, the means of communication were very different. So there's no other way but to get together and debate these ideas. Uh, also, the academies published a journal, and this gave the practitioners the opportunity to publish the research and to make it known. It's going to create valuable networks, not only nationally, but internationally. And it's going to facilitate the collaboration of the different practitioners. So the academies were, were very important. Now, in the case of Latin America, I feel that for the different countries uh, in the 19th century, this was important because it was a way of being of legitimation. This is something that the international community is going to recognize. Argentina has now an academy of medicine, or Mexico has an academy of medicine of uh, medicine, and there's going to be interchange with uh, France and Germany and so on and so forth. So this is going to be very important for these countries that have just become independent. It meant that local scientists or artists or whatever they were, were being taken seriously, not only locally, but also internationally. And also it was a way, I see it, of nationalism, being proud of your own country because you have now an academy. Now, in the case of Mexico, the establishment of the academy was quite unique because the Mexicans try a number of times to establish these different academies, but they fail. The government never helps them. They uh, sometimes they hinder their efforts, but when they with the French Empire, the French government and the French army are going to be interested 
in promoting this. Of course, they have their own ends. This is not just because they like Mexicans, but um, they have their own ends. But they are going to give this kind of push to the locals that, that is going to help them to organize and is going to give them the legitimacy. Of course, they are going to be linked to France and in a way the discipline, because this was basically run by the French army and the meetings were organized, the discussions were all organized. There was collaboration with, um, with the French practitioners and there was real collaboration with the French uh, practitioners in hospitals, in uh, different cases, and, and so on. So it's very ironic that the Mexican government never worried about these things, and it was the French that are going to basically be responsible for establishing what is now the Academia de Medicina de Mexico. So... Uh, this is wonderful. I think you've painted as like a whole picture of your book. So I've taken up a lot of your time, but I just want to know if you want to maybe close the discussion by kind of thinking about how we started the conversation in, in 1813. And I mean, you've talked about the colonial period too, and how we're talking about now about the Academy of Medicine. So maybe you can, how, how you can give us a final sense of how things change in the span of of these years of your project, the, the period you're analyzing. And here um, I would add the question I, I like to end my interviews with, which is what do you think this story can teach us in this moment? This is not about a book, a book about epidemics, for example, uh, but it is about medical institutions, uh, physicians, And this is a very important and timely concern today. So what can you tell us about this as well? Well, I think the topic is very relevant. We, well, I realize that there are many issues that continue to the present and they haven't changed. One of them, for example, is the hierarchy within the healthcare professionals that in Mexico is very, very marked. The other point would be the illegal practice of, uh, of medicine. And this is something that we still have. Uh, medicine is practiced illegally. It has not been possible to control also the sale of medicines completely, supposedly You need a prescription, but in many pharmacies, you don't. Uh, so these are issues that were there in the early 19th century and have not been solved. There's also a great deal of tension between the healthcare practitioners and the government. And we're seeing this at the present with this pandemic. Uh, the government doesn't seem to have learned its lesson that public health is very important. So, especially at the moment, other political issues have been given priority 
over public health. The result is that we have problems in the hospitals, uh, we have um, healthcare professionals that are getting very sick, and we have demonstrations every day in the streets. So these tensions between the government, we see, and the School of Medicine, at some point, the faculty decides to go on strike because they haven't paid it. So still here, it hasn't been completely solved. So in a way, the government has not given the priority that public health requires. It's not... uh, hasn't prioritized public health as it, as it should. And it has never been, in, well, it wasn't in the 19th century, it has, it's not now. The other thing that I find quite interesting is their response to epidemics. We haven't changed much. Our responses are similar to the ones that we had or people had during the Black Death. That is basically isolation, sanitation, and weighing the economic costs against the uh, health priorities of the inhabitants of a certain place. And this is something that we are living now. So that's what I would see as relevant. And I think that if, if you read my book, there are going to be a number of things also that uh, that you'll be able to draw similarities to present day, to the present day. Wonderful. And I think that is, that is an invitation for our listeners to go and check out the book, because what you just said, I think it's a lot of things to think about, and it's a wonderful end to finish the discussion. Um, maybe just before I let you go, tell us, I mean, you just told us you retired, but what are you working, are you working on? Do you have certain projects? Um, yeah. What's, what's going on? Well, I have, I have a small project. Of course, sometimes you start with a small project and it grows and becomes a a monster. My project is, uh, hopefully for an article and, I'm interested in looking at the years 1862 to 63 in the city of Puebla. As you may have heard about the Cinco de Mayo uh, battle. So to take that year uh, up to the end of the siege of Puebla by the French, that takes place the next year, and to look at the health of the common soldiers that participated in both, in the Cinco de Mayo battle and the siege of Puebla. Hopefully I'll be able to do that for both armies because I I want to see if health had, the health of the soldiers had an important uh, role in the outcome of these uh, events. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to reading that article or if it turns into a book, that book. So thank you, Luz Maria, for being here uh, today and talking to me. Thank you very much, Lisette.